ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there, welcome to another edition of The Minefield. We try to negotiate the moral and ethical dilemmas of modern life. And occasionally we just try to come to terms with a topic that we know almost nothing about. Today is one such day. How will we do it? Let's see if we can find out. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing fine. I do get the sense that we are either boldly or foolishly venturing where the minefield has never ventured before. In terms of literal topic, that's true. Mm, I don't think we've true. ever done anything quite I mean, even close to this. But there's a minefieldian way of doing it. That's right. right. I agree. Do we need to give our disclaimers at the top? Yeah, okay, you go first. Well, we're kind of talking nuclear power. No one involved in the show today is an expert on nuclear generation or even necessarily the technological, economic, political dangers, deeper considerations that lie on all sides. This is something that's probably going to come up, though, as an issue over which we need to provide either democratic assent or democratic refusal. And so it's worth... Well, hang on. Is it? Yeah, I think it will be. Go on then. It'll be something we're going to have to vote on. In Australia? Yeah. I just don't foresee that. Do you not? No, I think the nuclear power debate's dead in Australia. Yeah, I disagree. Okay, well, go on. Take me through it. Well, no, I'm not going to take us through it. To give this a proper kind of minefieldian twist, I, I think there are a few little steps we need to do first. But, you know, it's really curious that this is the moment that we've arrived at in Australia's debate over how to respond to our ever-changing and our increasingly desperate situation on this planet. Do you remember, Waleed? We had this conversation with Hugh Brakey not that long ago. It would have been, what, midway through last year, I believe, about consent and compromise and the conditions in which we can allow people to back down from, say, formerly intractable positions. I think one of the things that in moral debates, in political debates, we love, we even lust after, is that moment of humiliating back down. Uh, Most political interviews are predicated on the idea that at some stage or another, I want to try to catch the politician out, saying something that he or she doesn't believe, saying something that contradicts something they previously said. We want that moment, don't we? We want the moment where the person has to walk back things that they've previously said. But I think often, often for the sake of the consistency and the cohesion of our common life, sometimes we simply need to allow debates to move on to the next stage without any corresponding gotcha moment. And it just strikes me that this is where we kind of are with climate politics in Australia. I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but for me, the fact that the carbon tax debates of the Gillard-Abbott years are a kind of distant and distantly shameful memory fills me with a fair degree of hope, Waleed. Wow. I don't think we could be more opposed on this. Oh, opposed, I don't mean at loggerheads. I just mean... Disagree. I think we're approaching this... Yeah. Our assumptions about what is happening... Okay. ...seem to be completely at odds. Do you just want me to lay out where I think we are? Uh, okay. <laughs> this is so strange. It feels so artificial. I'm not actually arguing at any stage for nuclear power. 
I have. I'm not even getting to that point. I'm yeah. just talking about your observation. That- but I think where we are in climate politics in Australia and even globally, I think it's encouraging. I think it's incredibly encouraging. Why are you so encouraged? All right. So anybody who's been in any way conscious, I think, over the last 15 years knows something <laughs> about what's happened in Australia's gl- grubby climate wars. I mean, it has been awful. And as late as a pre-election pledge in 2022, Scott Morrison said when he was standing for re-election, he said that cold fire power plants should be allowed to operate as long as they possibly can. We all remember, don't we, the 2017 bringing of the little lump of coal into Parliament. This is a piece of coal. Don't be frightened of it. It's not that long ago where it felt like the two sides of politics were were not just incommensurably aligned, but the political interests and the political associations that had accrued to the various positions and the relative advantage that had accrued to those positions was such that we simply could not ever, ever move to except in the occasion of some kind of catastrophe, that we were never going to move to the point where coal would be something that would be actively behind us. And that something... Well, you think it is? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Wow. Actively behind us. Yeah. Do you want me to demonstrate my case? Yeah. All right. So where labor stands with respect to renewables, I think is obvious. And it's well publicized. Anthony Albanese wants to move Australia to 82% renewable energy by 2030. Um, That's pretty much in line with what most other nations in the world have pledged that they're doing. They're doing something similar. So phasing out reliance on fossil fuels, phasing out reliance on uh, sort of heavily carbon-emitting technologies – and moving increasingly towards renewables. Now, there's a caveat there that I think we need to come to eventually. But what I think is interesting is that especially in the aftermath of the 2011 Fukushima disaster, when nations like Germany began at that moment on the advice of the National Ethics Commission to begin uh, decommissioning their nuclear power plants, to denuclearize, in other words, that many other nations in the world, many, many other nations in the world, have seen nuclear as the only viable way for them to provide the kind of consistency, the kind of constancy, and the security of baseload power that they're going to need in order to meet their carbon emission goals, moving away from fossil fuels, and approaching something like, something like net zero by, I don't even know what the target is now, but it seems to be something a bit more like 2050 than 2030. And what's so interesting about this is that both conservatives and progressives in many nations, the UK, the US, where we've seen a steady uptick in popular support and political support for expanding the US's nuclear power regime or program. Uh, France is already virtually maxed out. China, of course, is developing increased nuclear capacity, as is India. What's so interesting is that nuclear is increasingly being put forward as a viable alternative to fossil fuels and an alternative that could conceivably be reached as a way of replacing fossil fuels altogether or virtually altogether by about 2050. Did you see, Waleed? There's so much about this I just, I think you're missing. I'm not making an evaluative statement. I'm just saying- No, I know that. Okay. I think there's so much about this I feel like you're misdescribing. Okay. 
Can I take one last step and then you go? <laughs> okay. Just in case I am walking towards the plank, why don't I just go no, ahead look, and... Maybe, maybe you're right. It just makes me feel like I've been living in a different country to you, which, let's be honest, we've known for a long time. Okay. So, yeah. last month, and we're talking here about July, opposition leader Peter Dutton says this, the only feasible and proven technology which can firm up renewables and help us achieve the goals of clean cost-effective and consistent power is next-generation nuclear technologies. Australians must consider new nuclear technologies as part of the energy mix. And there he was particularly referring to the development of what are called small modular reactors. In other words, kind of portable, smaller-scale nuclear reactors that don't have the same profile, that don't have the same permanence and therefore aren't subject to the same obsolescence as the big nuclear power plants that, you know, seem to have, you know, maybe a couple decades in them before they need to be substantially uh, revamped, decommissioned, or or whatever. This is technology, for instance, that the UK has just pledged itself to as part of its Great Britain, or sorry, Great British nuclear strategy. This is what India has tried to sign up to. This is what China is increasingly trying to develop. And it's what Peter Dutton, specifically prescribed as a kind of technology that could be dropped directly into uh, decommissioned coal fire power plants and then be plugged into the grid and on it goes. What I think is so interesting here, what I think is so interesting is it's almost like we've reached a tipping point. There's no longer an active debate over whether climate change is happening or not. The proof is all around us, and especially after the devastation of the Northern Hemisphere summer we've just seen. And I don't know about you, Walid, I know so many people that are on tenterhooks at this moment. After this warm, this uncomfortably warm winter, after seeing the fires raging in Greece, in Algeria, in Canada, now most recently in Maui, there's this feeling of, of apprehension about what comes next for Australia's summer. It's almost as if things have now moved on, these debates that so captured us and that seemed to lock us into a moral and political impasse. It's almost as if we've moved on. The question is not whether, but the question is simply how we move completely beyond coal and fossil fuels and how quickly. And so from my mind, from my mind, now that people say on the extreme left, and I hear I think of something like Extinction Rebellion, have decided that the purest disruptive tactics that they have employed in the past ought to be a thing of the past. As of July this year, they've renounced the tactics of public disruption. At the same time, Walid, I think we're seeing a similar kind of softening on the conservative side. And the way of stepping away from the reliance on coal is to take this tentative step towards a domestic nuclear program, even in a place like Australia. Now, there are legal hurdles, there are historical hurdles. I think they are profound ethical hurdles. But I don't know about you, and maybe you're going to see this completely differently. I find that step away from the edge and towards something like a slightly more conciliatory position, even if we want to say that it's ethically wrongheaded and ignorant of some of the dangers, ethical, economic, historical, legal, even that step inwards away from coal, I think that's good news for us. Okay. How am I? I don't know where to begin. Let me start with where you're right. You're right, I think, that the debate in Australia in a formal political sense has moved away from climate change, real or not, yeah. to the question of how to respond to it. This, I think, is a function of the last election. Yes, I agree. 
the coalition seems to have taken the message that the success of the TLs was based partly on the issues surrounding women, but also on climate politics. And so Peter Dutton has moved in a different way. I do think going back to Scott Morrison brandishing coal in Parliament, I feel like that's a bit misleading. That was a long time ago. Would you say 2016? That was 2017, but it was as late, Waleed, as, uh, what was it, May 2022. He was saying the coal fire plants should be allowed to continue to operate as long as they possibly can. Right. Now, this is where I think I don't understand where you're coming from, because the idea that coal is in our past doesn't seem to be a matter of political consensus. All the stuff I see from the kind of bodies that are very active and concerned on climate change it seems to be spending a lot of energy taking the Labor government to task over its approval of coal. Mm-hmm. That's right. So while you were talking, I just Googled to find an example. Here's something from the Australia Institute. So how would you describe this? Um, it's a think tank based in Canberra. Would you be comfortable describing it as a left-wing think tank? Yes, I would. Okay. I have a problem with left and right as terms, but Let's use the shortcut here. If we see the Albanese government as fundamentally a left and centrist left government, I think probably more centrist left than left left, as was demonstrated, by the way, by the Labour's National Conference, um, well, then, we can, is, then we can certainly see, I think, the Australia Institute as being to the left of the current government. Anyway, I'm not interested in categorising the government necessarily, but I'm just trying to position the Australia Institute. And here they are. So much coal news, all of it bad. Tanya Plibersek has approved four new coal mines. They list them, Mount Pleasant Mine, New South Wales, Narrabri Underground Mine, New South Wales, mm-hmm. the Ensham Mine in Queensland, the Isaac River uh, Mine in Queensland. In other words, the narrative that surrounds this government from, are we using this term, those to the left of it, mm-hmm. is not one of we've left coal behind and that is, that's a matter of consensus now. It's actually one of coal being part of our future and this government ensuring that through decisions that it makes. Now, there's a countervailing argument about Tanya Plibersek, specifically as the Environment Minister, approving certain things, whether it be gas or coal, because the legislation ties her hands and that's really all she can do in those circumstances. She can't go beyond it, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, you cut it. That's not a, that's not a scene you would describe as having coal entirely in the rear view mirror. Where I think coal is heading in the rear view mirror is that we're seeing commercial operators decide that they want to retire their coal power plants. Um, But that's not the same thing as a political consensus, that it simply exists in our past. In fact, any way you cut it, it's part of our present for a lot of presents to come. And that's before you get into an argument about the kind of coal we're talking about. Yes, that's right? right. Whether you're talking about metallurgical coal or thermal coal, right? And I've had these discussions with, you know, reps from the CFM, is it CFMEU or CFMEU? Mm-hmm. I never know what to say anymore. Anyway, I've interviewed those people and they'll talk about the importance of Coles Future. Of course they will, because that's, they're the jobs, that's providing the jobs of its members, right? They'll talk about just how crucial that is and how the, the future of coal is actually quite long and assured. So in other words, I'm not saying that everyone who's making this analysis about the centrality of coal in Australian politics and it's, you know, that that this is a a coal-supporting government and so on. I'm not saying their analysis is in every particular correct, but I just don't see how you get from that broad picture that I've sketched there to an observation that we agree that coal's in our past. So can can I make one clarification? Yeah. So they're saying that coal is historically, is actually, is materially in our past, which is obviously not the case. Obviously not the case. It's still being dug up. It's still being used. And and approved. 
And it's being approved. But there is a difference between approved in the sense of being reinvested and folded back into an energy future. And there's approval in the interest of weaning off and then shifting the balance towards an 82% renewables target by yeah, 2030. The, the weaning is happening commercially. Yes, it is, but and, it's also happening. Nothing, it's I also think happening. That has very little to do investment. with Australian politics. Look, These are decisions that companies that are multinational make in the interests of their bottom line that have to do with finance that they can. We saw this with the Adani mine. Yes, that's there right. was no Australian government standing in the way of the Adani mine. It's falling over repeatedly commercially, right? So that's happening, but I don't see that that's emerging as a result of some kind of I don't know new magical consensus that's emerging in politics, Australian or otherwise. No, no, not a magical consensus, but I do think an aspirational consensus, which is really important. And where, where the issue then comes up and where it becomes really sticky is if we are to pledge ourselves, if we are to meet something like an 82% renewables target, in other words, 82% of Australia's energy is comprised of, from new, renewable sources by 2030. If that's the case, then the real question becomes what happens with the other 18%? And this then becomes all the issues surrounding baseload, concerning constancy versus intermittency. Uh, in other words, the yeah, nightmare... which is where nuclear comes into the argument. I... Well, where, where nuclear comes into the argument and where this is the space that coal currently occupies. Yeah. The constancy element of the argument. And what I find so interesting is that the opposition leader has said, if we are going to move to some kind of renewable, clean target then there's no alternative but for nuclear to be a substantial part of what it is that Australia relies on. That's, that's fascinating to me, Waleed. So, Sorry, what fascinates you particularly? Well, okay, we've obviously not moved beyond coal, but there is a transition away from coal. I think there's no doubt about that. And I think what is also fascinating is that the coalition has decided to get on board, even without the kind of the overt backdown in the transition from Scott Morrison to Peter Dutton, there is a willingness to pursue another form of technology that uh, other conservative governments around the world are also beginning to, for want of a better term, warm up to. So I think... (laughs) Okay, so can I stop you there? Yes. You say they're beginning to warm up to it. Here you're talking about nuclear. When I say beginning, here I'm meaning some of the most intractable critics of the capacity of renewables energy in the United States. Okay, so that's not beginning to warm up to something. That's pursuing a position that I've always held. So these are people who, and I don't mean this as a criticism, I mean this merely as a description. Mm -hmm. These are people who have long held a position about the virtues of nuclear power. Mm. Ever since we've had climate debates... there you're wrong. There you're wrong. Oh, am I? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there has been a sizable and a noticeable, especially, I mean, just, just remember, Fukushima was not that long ago. And there has been, in the intervening 12 years, there has been a noticeable shift on the conservative side of politics in multiple nations towards thinking more optimistically and more fondly about the prospects that are held out by innovations in nuclear technology, including the development of, say, you know, these smaller modular reactors. So which countries are you talking about there? You can't include France. No, you can't because it's bipartisan in France, and France has and it's been, been nuclear all in been for the part, better part yeah. of 50 years. Yeah. Right. Uh, but it certainly is, it certainly is the UK. Uh, it certainly would be Canada. It certainly is the United States. It goes without saying that this is being taken up 
at this stage aspirationally uh, by India and China for a very, very long time has been full steam ahead in this particular front. And I think what's interesting is where there is no history, where there's no history of nuclear power in Australia. I mean, there is quite literally no history. It's under legal prohibition ever since John Howard uh, in 1998. It's banned in all states and territories. There is no history here. You could say, you could say that the coalition moving towards the nuclear option is mere opportunism, a kind of anything but renewables in the idea, in, in the sense that renewables yes, are politically Yes, you tainted. could say that. <laughs> and you that's think exactly that that's the what case? you could say. I think in a lot of cases, yeah. And I think when I look at these, so the country mm. you didn't mention is Australia. And I think that's because it's really clear in Australia. The, the voices that are talking about renewable energy are the same ones who've always mentioned renewable energy in the context of a climate debate. They may have previously foregrounded that with an argument about climate science or a defence of coal or something like that. And I suspect these are not people, if you ask them about coal, they would say, oh, God, we've got to get out of coal. Mm -hmm. They would still say coal's an important part of the energy mix in Australia, it has a great future, provides a lot of jobs, et cetera, et cetera. They'd still say that. But they've always said, and I know because I've, I've had these conversations with them, where they say, if you're really serious about low emissions technology, you should be looking at nuclear. Mm. That's always been a rider. It's always been part of the discussion. All that's happened, all that's changed is the bit that I agree with you on, which is that the political fight over the reality or otherwise of climate change has lost some of its purchase mm -hmm. uh, as a result of the last election. But what that means is that the debate simply reshapes into its most comfortable formation, which is one that becomes about nuclear versus yeah. um, Renewables. Now, no, I don't I'm think not you're even right necessarily, there. No, well, I'm, I, I'm not even saying that's a bad thing necessarily, by the are. way, right? I'm comfortable with the idea that we have a proper debate about nuclear energy. So am I. At the same time, as I have a, a sociological conviction that the nuclear energy debate in Australia is dead because Australia doesn't have any interest in it, Australians are too sceptical of it and have been for too long, and then once you run into the economic arguments about how you would start up mm, nuclear power in Australia, the whole thing just falls apart fairly quickly. I mean, to me, I remember coming across Ziggy Switkowski's analysis of it. This is a long time ago. Maybe he's revised, but I haven't heard him revise, where he basically said, yeah, you could do it, but you would require a carbon tax to do it in order to make... And I was like, okay, well, we know how carbon taxes go. <laughs> and once nuclear is in that position, I think Australians will probably fall behind. Well, if we're going to go to that trouble we'll probably do it with renewables and rely on technology to make it more reliable, right? Now, you can have an argument about whether or not that's clear thinking or muddled thinking. I'm not entering that argument now. I'm just saying that's the state of the argument as I see it. Mm -hmm. If I had to describe it, that's what it is. And so those pushing nuclear, you can say that contribution is welcome, fine, but don't say it's some profound break with anything. Don't say it's no. like some brand new thing. No. It's not. No, of course it's not. But sorry, let me push back on, on two points. And okay. then I just want to mention one thing before we kind of transition to the next stage of the discussion, which is going to have to involve a guest, I think. Um, I think what's important here, I wasn't saying that it's a big break with anything. In fact, I was saying the opposite to that. I'm saying that one side of politics has permitted itself to move away from a politically entrenched position that it held as recently as 18 months ago. Which was what exactly? Which was that coal-fired power stations should be allowed to run as long as they possibly can. That was Scott Morrison's pre-election. Yeah, but are they saying they should be shut down prematurely? The new opposition leader is yeah. saying that, let me just get his words exactly right here. 
Quote, the only feasible and proven technology which can firm up renewables and help us achieve the goals of clean, cost-effective, and consistent power is next-generation nuclear technologies. I reckon now, those the, words were utterable 10 years ago by anyone you care to name. Tony Abbott could have said that. With uh, Scott Morrison no. could have said that. With Absolutely. Like, the only alternative. With John Howard? With John Absolutely. Howard's ban still being within recent political memory? No. Yep. No. Yep. No. In fact, I would be stunned if they hadn't said something like okay. that. Because what's missing from that, they're not saying, by the way, let's give up on coal and go nuclear. They're just saying, if you want low emissions, the only alternative that's realistic to renewables is nuclear. Nope. That's what that says. The firm statement. And that was sayable the statement all is, through the coal era. The statement is, Waleed, the only way of firming up our reliance on renewables. So, yes. Look, no, no, with low emissions, right? That's yes. what that's the, that's right. Well, that's well, always no, been no, true, Scott. No. Which can firm up renewables and help us achieve the goals of clean, cost-effective, consistent power. That was nowhere in the coalition's rhetoric just a few years ago. It simply okay. wasn't. It simply wasn't. Now, here's my point. <laughs> it strikes me that they we are at least on the verge of something like a political consensus about moving towards 80% renew or reliance on renewables by 2030. That doesn't strike me as being something that's a fierce point of contention on either side of the political aisle. The big point is what then happens with the rest? On what do we rely for the remaining 18 to 20%? Which is another way of asking, how is it that we deal with the problem of not having sufficient power during peak times, not having an energy grid that's responsive to periods of high demand. Um, and that's where the question of the so-called baseload comes in. Do we rely on nuclear for that? Do we rely on coal or, well, we can talk about what comes next for that. So I think it's encouraging, and I'm really surprised that you're not encouraged by this. It's John Howard, to me. 2006, it would be crazy in the extreme to block the development of nuclear energy in Australia. I wouldn't have any objection, none whatsoever. I'm serious, quite serious, Mr. Howard said when asked if he'd want a reactor next door. This is not new, Scott. So 2006, he said that. Yeah. Fascinating. I just Googled it right now. This is, um, what was this published in? The Sydney Morning Herald, I think. And was this anywhere in the 2010s? I don't remember it. I just, it's been a familiar theme to me. That's all I can say. I'm going on sort of my accumulated experience here. Okay. Not so much, you know, endless quotes. Quote, I believe very strongly that I'd be failing Australia if I didn't factor in nuclear power as part of the solution, referring to climate change, he said. A okay. nuclear industry won't happen tomorrow. This is part paraphrase now in the reporting, but over a period of 10 to 20 years, quote, it's foolish and backward looking and old fashioned of people to say we will always oppose the use of nuclear power. This is not new. We can welcome the idea that the climate wars over the reality or otherwise of climate change are over. Mm -hmm. I think those wars actually existed more at a subterranean level than in the quotes of leaders. You yeah, I think that's have, probably right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And to some extent, there's still going on a little bit, but yes, not I as much. Agree. Okay. I think we're just having a debate over how much exactly has changed here. Okay. And here I would just note, and I, I just refer this to you to have a look at. A fascinating piece that George Brandis wrote recently talking about how actually the political consensus over climate change in the UK is starting to fracture. Mm. That Rishi Sunak has pursued a path specifically of prioritising the economic over emissions reduction because of the economic stresses that exist right now. Mm, that's true. Um, the heightening of climate protest in the UK, things like that. I think it's 
I don't know. I, I just see a totally different picture to the one that you're seeing. Yeah. None of this necessarily means, says anything about the pursuit of nuclear energy as a viable option. Okay. <laughs> know, which may be what we're here to discuss. But there is actually something else that's going on in the UK, which we're just going to have to devote another show to. And I think the emergence okay. of, of something like a bipartisan climate consensus and abandoning the harder edges on either side of the debate. That's been something truly significant, I believe, uh, over the last eight eight months. Um, let me just mention just one other thing, though, Willie. So what you've left out there is the fact that also on the left, there has been a softening towards the prospect of nuclear energy. And the reason is, and to my mind, morally speaking, I think this is probably a, a mistake but the reasoning is the realities of a climate-devastated future that's being passed down to two, three, four generations hence is such a certainty that the kind of precautionary principles surrounding the storage, say, of nuclear waste and what would happen if, or what would happen if there was another Fukushima, or what would happen if, in other words, some of the the, the really scary scenarios that have surrounded the nuclear debate to date, those are being relativized by the immediacy and the certainty of climate devastation. So I think there's something there that's curious to me. It would be very surprising if nuclear wasn't taken up at a greater clip, at a higher rate in more and more nations around the world. I think there's a strong moral case for it to be taken up in the interests of equity and security in places like uh, China and India, it makes sense to me. And I think a hard transition away from fossil fuels in both of those extremely populous nations, there's, the, there's a kind of moral naivety or there's a kind of moral partiality about that that I think is really problematic. So I understand why the certainty, the security, the high, the high levels of energy that can be produced uh, through nuclear. I understand why that should be taken up. It seems to me that in Australia, there are particular moral questions about why the debate probably won't go any further here. You've raised some historical and some economic questions, and I think those historical and economic questions are real. But I also think that there are particular ethical issues that are part of our peculiar uh, population density uh, our national relationship to land and to sacredness, the fact that the federal court is has proved itself increasingly willing to side with traditional owners when it comes to nuclear waste disposal. Um, but also, there are particular opportunities for innovation surrounding the question, the problem of, of intermittency, um, so, so non-consistent demand or inconsistent uh, demand, uh, um, supply in response to demand. I think there's some issues that are peculiar to this land that make nuclear something that should not be considered because it would be unnecessary to consider it. But these particular concerns have less to do, I think, with historical and political precedent than we've been discussing so far. We have a guest who's going to talk us out of this hole we're in. Scott? Is it a hole? 
I hope it's not a hole. I don't know. Anyway. Hole's just an evocative image because we're talking about power. <laughs> and, and waste storage. Yeah. Our guest is Carrie Dahlgren. She's research fellow in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University. As it happens, she's not a nuclear expert, but rather a social anthropologist and ethnographer interested in social and ethical aspects of energy production and consumption in Australia, which, Carrie, makes you pretty much the perfect person to have on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to this conversation. Do you care to rescue us? Yes, I can. Well, I can help or weigh in, at Go least on, on the yeah. debate here. I think I have to side with you, Waleed. I don't read that as a conciliatory position at all. I think it is much more of an opportunistic, anything but renewables perspective. Largely because, you said, Scott, there are issues that are, you know, particular to Australia in the sense that we don't have an existing nuclear industry. Uh, we have, you know, various issues around land, but we also have opportunities that are unique to Australia, which is that we have some of the best renewable resources in the world, right? We have a lot of sun and we have a lot of wind. And, you know, part of the real issue and the reason why coal power is closing down and shutting down is because it's not really economical anymore, right? There's not a business case to continue burning coal. Uh, and one of the reasons why is this actually this baseload is that can be a problem as well, right? Because uh, intermittency of renewables means we also have these periods where renewables are very abundant, right? We actually have periods of time where we have so much energy coming from renewable sources that electricity prices are negative, at least wholesale prices are negative. Uh, in the first quarter of 2023, 12% of the time in the NEM, the National Electricity Market, prices were zero or negative. Uh, between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. in Victoria and South Australia, it was like 55 and 60 percent of the time renewable prices or electricity, wholesale electricity prices are negative, right? So uh, something like a coal power generator, which doesn't just sort of shut down or ramp up very easily, can't respond to that. So producing electricity is costly for them at that time. Right, so these ideas of, of baseload is you know exactly what we need isn't correct. Hmm. We actually need sort of flexible power supply, and we also need flexible demand. What storage then really is the issue, right? Which is why you get into battery talk. And you need storage or uh, transmission infrastructure, right? Right. So the other option is that you build a lot of renewables uh, and you build it all over the country, and you have transmission lines that connects it all up. So it doesn't really matter if the sun is shining or the wind is blowing in your little local area. If it's blowing or shining somewhere in Australia, you're good. And then storage, of course. So every time you have this excess renewable electricity, you can store it in a battery or something like Snowy 2.0, which is basically just a big infrastructure natural battery. Uh, and then that, that gives you the supply. So there's a lot of sort of technical opportunities to you know, deal with that problem of intermittency and to take advantage of the fact that we have you know, incredible resources here in Australia. So some of the examples you're talking about in Europe, you know, they have much smaller land masses. Mm. They don't have the sun. They don't have the natural uh, resources that we have to take advantage of. And that's you know, why nuclear is a sort of more appealing option to them. Go on, Scott. Oh, thank you. That's fabulous, Carrie. And I think that one of the things that you've begun to touch on is one of the primary arguments that in other places, and I think sometimes in political debate here, is raised in favor of nuclear, which is essentially we want our access to power to remain pretty much as it is. When we need it, we want it to be there on tap, for want of a better term. 
uh, and that the scary scenario that's held, been held out with renewables is that you're going to need it and you're not going to be able to have it because there's something inherently uh, inconsistent or fragile or flimsy uh, about the technologies or the technologies simply aren't there yet. And so the promise of nuclear is that it gives us that safety net. It gives us the reliability, uh, which is why we can overlook some of the other economic, historical, legal, maybe ethical concerns associated with it. Are you saying then, and this is where I'm, I'm just really not sure, I'm always skeptical about promises surrounding renewables that require pretty much no adjustment of lifestyle or of behavior on the part of those that are partaking of renewables energy. Are you saying that there's going to be no need for any corresponding change in, for want of a better term, the expensiveness of our living, the particular ways, the habits, the rhythms of the way we live? No, I'm not saying that, but not necessarily from uh, an austere perspective, right? It's mm-hmm. not necessarily about conservation. It's more about shifting our practices. So one of the kind of concepts I've been thinking a lot about in my research is something I'm calling an ethics of intermittent abundance. So, you know, we've really developed a, an everyday ethics around energy that is really framed in relationship to finite fossil fuels mm. or water, right? Where we basically think about the best way to act, the best way to live is to reduce, right? To do as little, to use as little as we possibly can. And that's, you know, makes sense when you're living in a fossil fuel world. But with renewables, it's different. It's much less material than it is sort of temporal, right? So it's actually about when we use energy that's more important. And so here in Australia, we have sort of a, you know, actually, as an American who now lives in Australia, I feel that we actually, that Australians actually have quite a strong sense of conservation Mm, around their energy use. A, A big example is around air conditioning, right? So Living in the U.S., we basically set our thermostat, leave it there all year. Here, you'd only turn your air conditioning on, you know, when on those really hot afternoons. Or at least that's the sort of ethical ideal. Mm. But the problem is that means that our demand is particularly peaky, mm. right? So on these, you know, we basically have to build our entire electricity system to handle a couple of hot summer afternoons. This is the gold plating that's right. problem, right? Exactly. So it becomes very expensive because we build it for the very worst even though that very rarely happens. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Electricity demand basically doubles for a few afternoons, and we have to build our infrastructure to accommodate that. But, you know, it actually might be better if we all pre-cooled our homes, right? So we ran the air conditioning more often so that we didn't all turn it on at the same time. So there's, um, you know, various ways in which we have developed various habits, various senses of virtue, uh, various sort of everyday ethics that are around a previous energy system that are different. We need to rethink and we need to reconfigure how we might be able to live slightly differently in relationship to those. And it goes to simple things like the patterns of our everyday routines, uh, the time that we come to work and go home. Uh, One of the concepts, or it's actually a scenario for 2050 that we've come up with in our research is called sunrises and siestas, right? (laughs) Because the idea is, oh, maybe we could have a future scenario in 2050 where we all Take a siesta, for example, during the hottest bits of the afternoon. So if we kind of open our minds to rethinking how we might want to design our society to take the most advantage of what renewable energy offers us, we could essentially live in quite a different way. So the problem I have with this, I mean, the siesta example is a really good one. Siestas are quite common around the world, or at least traditionally. They tend to be in very hot countries. We might become one of those. We're not actually a very hot country. We, We sort of think we are, but... 
live in Dubai for a while. You'll see what a hot country is. Right? <laughs> but the problem or the concern I have with the way you framed it is you don't design society. You can't. And people who do try to design society usually end up wreaking all kinds of havoc and destruction. So really what you're describing there is an evolution of social practices and perhaps consumer practices. But those sorts of things, it seems to me, and I say this purely intuitively, are centuries in the making. They're not things you can turn over in the same way that we want to manage an energy transition, right? We can't say, all right, it's renewables now. Uh, We're going to have way too much power at this point and maybe not enough at this point. Let's see if we can regulate. And that's not conducting an orchestra. That's herding cats. And I don't see how that becomes a viable... Like, I, I see how it works as a thought experiment, but I don't see how it works in the real world. People already do it, though. Well, a lot of people who have solar panels on their roofs, you know, change their routines around how they do it. They do it less. They don't necessarily look too much at, you know, the data that's coming from the solar panels, but they look to see if the sun's shining and decide, oh, maybe I'll do my laundry then. You know, we do a lot of research with households and understanding how they live with new digital and energy technologies. And one of the kind of big opportunities has been working from home, right, that's come about. Yeah, but that's coming to an end. I mean, even Zoom is asking its employees to go back in the office, right? Yeah, but the habits that we've learned through that, you know, can stay. The hybrid form of that, I think, is staying around for a while. Um, and just sort of understanding the, the ways that we can manage our energy use differently does offer, it's a slower process, I agree. It's not some sort of grand awakening that we're all going to wake up and completely change the way we structure our lives. But there's also outside pressures that might cause us to, right? COVID's a good example of that. But it's likely going to be more about extreme weather. Right? We're going to be facing these extreme weather events and we might have to change, change the way we live to accommodate them. So I think, Carrie, you and I both remember vividly the effect that the language of sacrifice had in American politics surrounding environmental conservation, care, the adoption of renewables. I mean, sacrifice, the whole language of sacrifice has been, ever since Jimmy Carter, has been toxic within American political discourse. There's something similar to that, I think, here. Every election, both sides of politics want to try to convince voters that the other side is going to make one part of you worse off and each side is trying to insist that what they're putting forward as policy will leave exactly nobody worse off. But Mm. here I think, however much we want to try to contort ourselves around it, the language of, Waleed, you might want to refer to it as kind of behavioral transformation or the adoption of kind of new patterns of social behavior and practice. I just don't see that the language of proximate sacrifice in the interests of something that is of greater value, is avoidable here. So, 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 for instance, the promise of nuclear power is that you can have as much as you have at the moment with all the consistency that you have at the moment, but without the carbon emissions. That's the promise. The cost that's sunk in that is that we are using a finite resource in exactly the same way as we're using finite resources with coal, And we're offloading the cost of that and the possible dangers of that to future generations because we are passing a future to them that will not have that same resource at their disposal. And that we're passing something to them that could be an environmentally degrading situation because we we just don't know how waste storage uh, is going to survive 100, 200, 300 years. 
hence. In other words, there's a fundamental, I think, breakdown of moral obligation there, which is you don't pass down a ruined world to those that come after you. This is part of our moral obligation to future generations, I think. So there has to be, I think, unless you want to impose sacrifices on the future, there has to be a corresponding language of sacrifice now, which if we don't want to say it means using less power, the way that you were describing it, Carrie, but rather using power differently, then that's something that can be politically and democratically marshaled, can it not? It could also be celebrated, though, right? Yes, Using so, yes, it differently yes, thank you. That's it's, right. It's positive, right? It's electricity is free right now. We had a, a participant who was, you know, running our research. who was talking about, you know, they got a, a text message from the energy retailer telling them electricity was free because there was too much wind in South Australia. And they go, oh, this is so awesome. And they turned on, you know, the music and they did all the chores and they go, this was great. Electricity is free. Let's party. This is celebratory as well. It's not just austerity. So that's one thing that I think is, you know, really important. And in terms of the sort of future generational ethics, there's also a, a, an ethical consideration about the present. So the mm-hmm. thing that kind of, to me, I find really interesting about, the, you know, Peter Dutton's suggestion that we just build this where the old coal power stations are is a really kind of strange to me, you know, environmental injustice of continuing to treat regions such as coal mining regions, coal power plant regions as sort of sacrifice zones. Mm, interesting. Right? And the idea that, oh, well, they've already, we've destroyed them, so let's just put nuclear power plants in them. Like, Do you think that's what he means, though? Well, no, but I think what he's, what he's getting at is this idea that these are the right places for it because this is what, where people are willing to accept it. But also where industries have been built up. So I could, for example, imagine, and this is purely my imagining now, an argument that says, well, there's a transition of jobs here as well. Hmm. Yeah, and but so the people who work in those regions, they go from one power industry to another. They'd probably actually quite like the idea of having those jobs provided to them. But that's why these places are also now renewable energy hubs, right? right. Not they're all now of being them, envisioned right. that way. Right. But they're being envisioned because there is a benefit of the existing infrastructure there. But putting a nuclear power station there instead of a renewable energy hub doesn't necessarily make a better uh, outcome for the community. For technical reasons, you mean? Well, because of all the complex safety and ethical things that we've been discussing and financial things as well, right? That these were going to take a long time, not necessarily deliver any significant benefit. But also thinking about the opportunities that there are in these communities for different forms of energy infrastructure that are much more beneficial and that can bring them into what is an important energy transition. Hmm. I mean, the only thing I suppose that pushes back a little bit against that is that, I mean, in terms of the polling that I've seen from the last sort of 10, 15 years, uh, communities in the UK, for instance, that tend to be well disposed towards nuclear power and the use of the domestic use of nuclear power are communities that have built up or have grown around existing currently operating nuclear power plants. So there seems to be the further you are away, the more averse you might be to their existence, the closer you are, then you actually have not just the existence of the grid that they can make use of, uh, but there's also the particular, I suppose, identity that then takes shape around them. That may be where what Walid is, is saying might end up holding up, that the closer you are, paradoxically, perhaps the more disposed you are towards them. They don't become the ogres in the same way. When it comes fundamentally down to it, I think you're right. The integration of daily rhythms 
of social habits, of practices, you're right, not of austerity, but of sacrifice and of celebration. And therefore, um, not just the enjoyment of renewables, but also the seeing of renewables as one of the ways in which we care for those existing uh, persons and communities, but also make the necessary passing on of renewable resources to future generations. I mean, those can be something I, I can see, not just fringe political parties, but I can see existing political movements finding a kind of renewed identity even within those habits and structures. I wonder if that, in the end, have to be economically driven, right? The clearest examples I can think of that you've mentioned there, carry about change behaviour are driven by a price signal. I think that's part of the reason I'm sceptical about the idea of a, a society-wide transformation that takes in everything, including when we sleep, when we work. That strikes me as a really deep, thoroughgoing transformation. But where price signals say, well, you do your washing now rather than then, that sort of thing I can see. Can you see mechanisms beyond a price signal or do you think price signals are sufficient? The problem with energy is even though it's, you know, technically a market, we don't really relate to it that way in our everyday lives, right? We value energy for what it allows us to achieve in the everyday. And usually that's practices like, you know, caring for your family, caring for yourself, cooking, cleaning, all those things, right? So the way that we think about energy decision-making is really to think of it, I think, as a this matter of everyday ethics, right? We're weighing these competing priorities to make decisions about what we value most. Which we don't do at the moment. Is that what no, you mean? No, that's, that's how we relate to energy, right? Mm, right? And energy is not something, you don't think about it as a market, right? You don't go, how much is it going to cost me to feed my family by turning on the oven? Because you get a bill, you know, way down the line. You Three don't know what it later, costs. Three months out. later, do you know if it costs you more to use the toaster or the microwave? No. People don't have that kind of an in-depth understanding of it. It's not like buying something off the shelf at a supermarket, right? So the price signals we have found in our research are not particularly effective in shifting people's actions. Well, unless they're specific to the time, right? So you spoke about the person hearing that electricity was free yep. in that moment. That's a very clear price signal. There are There's ways that prices can play a part and can be part of it, but it's not in the way of everyone can send, you know, looking at their meters to understand how much it's costing them to do this, this, and that. But it is about potentially structuring it, our, you know, tariff structures to encourage the use of electricity when it's more abundant. Um, and there's also a lot of technologies that can help to manage that for us. And so the trick is to really get people to sort of get on board with some of those technologies to accept certain forms of automation that will enable a better managing of the electricity grid. So electric vehicles are a good example, right? Because they're going to be, there'd be a huge stress on the grid if everyone comes in at 5 p.m. when they come home from work and plugs in their electric vehicles to charge at the same time. That's going to be a massive stress on the electricity grid. But if we can have smart charging, for example, that you can plug it in, but it won't start charging it until renewables are available or the you know, electricity demand is lower and we can kind of you know, use various AI technologies to help us sort of manage that charging then it'd be much easier for them to be incorporated into the grid and to also be used as storage that allows us to manage some of those, that positive intermittency of the Yeah, so I hear that and I go, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense until there's an emergency and I That's right. suddenly need to jump in my car. Exactly. And so yeah. this, this is where I worry. Like, I think it's all well and good to say we can be flexible in the way we live our lives around the availability. But in some ways that makes the nuclear argument even more powerful because what the nuclear argument is saying is, this is not something you should have to adjust your life around. This is survival. This is 
emergency, right? And in an emergency situation, it's of no benefit to you that we've come out with some kind of system of optimization. Optimization needs to go out the window at that point. And yep. because we've seen power, not as an adornment to our lives, but as a fundamental, as basic as food, it's an argument that can only go so far, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, in relation to extreme weather, it becomes even more consequential, right? Right. So one of the things that we've highlighted in our research is that exact issue with these kind of dreams of automation doing all of this for us, which is that, you know, with more extreme weather events, people are likely to override that automation to protect themselves and their family, to charge up their batteries, to make sure that they have that in the case of an outage. Um, and so this is something that the energy sector is going to need to sort of plan for, build the infrastructure for, and to take into account. But the trick is, I think, having a better understanding of that social understanding of energy, right? What do people actually care about? And how can we incorporate that into our planning for these technologies? And what kinds of backups do we need to give people the sense of security that they need while we also deal with the needs of the new electricity system that we have? Can I ask you one final question? Because we're about to run out of time. But it comes back to Scott and my original argument about the politics of this. How much of the nuclear debate is hampered by the fact that the people who are now pushing nuclear are the same people who've ended up, I think we can probably say, on the losing side of the climate reality mm. argument. So in other words, is it possible that they're right about the nuclear energy element, but no one's going to listen to them because they were wrong the first time? I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is much more about how does nuclear stack up in relationship to what are the opportunities that Australia has in terms of its renewable resources. And the you think it's that cold a calculation? You think we're looking at it that impartially? No, I don't think we're looking at it that impartially. But I do think that that's basically why it just seems like it's opportunistic, right? Because it actually doesn't make that much sense. It's not actually, you know, the, that lucky country argument of Australia, which was so fundamental to, you know, the extractive industry. We're now actually, we're even a luckier country now in terms of our renewable resources. Right. So to try to say that, oh, no, we're actually going to try to poke holes in that argument every chance we get to show, oh, no, we get this, these aren't really reliable. Oh, they're not really that good. It's disingenuine because of the incredible opportunities that Australia offers for renewable energies and because of you know the ways that we really can think about our structuring our lives in ways that make more sense for how we want to live in the future with renewable energies without a significant sacrifice. What a way to finish. There's a whole other show that you've just introduced there, Kerry, <laughs> um, which is how all the best shows end. Thank you very much for coming in. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Kerry Dolgren, who is Research Fellow in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. I'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.